titled How to Believe in God. And our practice here is to uh, pray, spend some moments in silence, and then pray together as a, a community. And what we're doing is we're asking God to, to meet us through, through the text of Scripture. And God does that by, by His Holy Spirit. And, and so a lot of times we'll ask God to uh, illuminate the text so that we recognize that it's, it's true. It's eternally true. And so would you, would you pray that with me? Father, you tell us to delight ourselves in you, and you will give us the desires of our hearts. And so, Lord, I ask that through this text, you would show us the truth of that, that we would experience it, um, that you would teach us what it means uh, to, to not love the world and teach us what that doesn't mean as well, um, and teach us what it means to uh, begin to kill the works that are in our flesh that lead us down paths that won't last and that you would make us uh, eternal and that you would make us long for eternity um, right now in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so we have been asking this question, how do we believe in God? And John's purpose in writing his letter, 1 John is so that those who believe in the name of the Son of God may know, may have assurance that they have eternal life. Now, eternal life is not just about duration. It's not just about quantity. It's also about uh, the quality of life. And that is both a, a present and future reality, which means that you can experience eternal life right now. That's part of what John is telling us. And at, at first glance, what you'll see in this passage is that John is telling us to do something in how we relate to the world if we believe in Jesus. Now, I want to say something right off the, the bat. This is the same person who wrote the most famous uh, Bible verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. But in this text, he's saying, hate the world, essentially, resist the world. And so we're going to talk about what that means in the context here. But at first glance, what you'll notice is that John is telling us to do something, to uh, put something into practice. He's saying you need to love God and you don't need to love the world. And that should never be divorced from what has come before in the book and what we've been talking about to this point, meaning in the gospel, Jesus always tells you who you are before he asks you to do anything. Um, before the Israelites were given the Ten Commandments, he said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of slavery. Now go do these ten things. And uh, a pastor in Texas put it like this. He said, you don't know the family rules of a family unless you're in the family. Um, and that, that's to say the gospel always begins with rooting you in an identity before it tells you to do anything at all. So let's say you are in a place where at some, at some level you're like, I actually do believe in God. I mean, that's part of why you're at church. I'm assuming part of maybe why you're tuning in. There's a part of you that says, I want to believe in God. What does that mean for your practical life? 
What does that mean for how you interact with the world on a, on a day-to-day basis? And John tells us at least two things from this passage concerning that question. Like, how, how, how do we practice believing in God? Number one, uh, resist the world. Number two, practice your eternal reality. So point one, uh, resist the world. I am uh, famously bad at grammar and spelling and all sorts of things. So like, you know, you take grammar when you're in ninth grade in high school and it, it just did not make sense to me. And I got to college my sophomore year and I started taking uh, a class um, with, with Latin. I started learning Latin. And there was a sense into which I, for the first time in my life, I was like, oh, like that's what English grammar means. Like I had to step out of the language to even get uh, a framework for how to think about my, my own native tongue. And what John says is that um, in order to, to believe in God, there's a, there's a sense into which you, you have to unaddict yourself from the world to even gain perspective on what your heart's even doing with it. That doesn't mean that you, you step out of the world because that, that would be impossible. But what John does is, is what a lot of the New Testament writers do. They, they say, you are actually located in heaven. That you're more there than you are here right now. And it asks you to, to begin to think like that, to begin to step away from this world and look at it from heaven's perspective and think, and think okay, this is, this is what I'm doing with my life. And that's what John is, is doing. He's reorienting us back to our eternal reality. And to love the world is to put anything. How do we understand the love of the world? It is to put anything, and I mean anything, in the place of God. And it is to treat this existence, this world, like it's your true home. Like it's an end in and of itself. There's a, an immediate question when I, when I hear the phrase in the Bible, uh, don't love the world. And the, the term in Greek is actually cosmos. And context is everything in the Bible. John does not mean here you can't love trees, you can't love animals, you can't love the good things in this world. But what John is, is thinking of here is that system, the world that he's talking about here is that system that sets itself up against God's kingship in the universe. A commentator puts it like this. The term cosmos here means human society temporarily controlled by the power of evil organized in opposition to God. And if that sounds too fantastical, um, just think about what happened this year. How do you explain it? How do you explain that the entire globe was inclined towards violence, towards division, towards hating one another? Been watching this documentary series made by BBC uh, called Can't Get You Out of My Head. And it's basically tracing the history in, in Europe and Asia and the West on how 2020 happened. It's trying to make a point on why there was so much 
the vision, the whole thing seems so extremely accurate to what our passage is saying. And it's not using biblical language at all. But the reason why the world is inclined towards division, isolation, violence is because people have overinflated desires. Epithemia is the word in our text. Lust of the flesh and the eyes. And we individually want to be the center of power and praise. That that's at work in every human being. And that's the world. The world isn't like non-Christian things. The world is everywhere. Outside and inside. And modern people, you know, we like, we like to have options. Um, and we want to choose the best option based on the best experience that we can possibly have. Even with church, I mean, you heard it, we shop around, we all do it, right? And, and Christianity says up front with no questions asked, you must love God more than anything in your life. And to love God means self-induced elimination of options on the front end. And it's uncompromising on that front. Now, here's the reason why. It's because if you put anything else in the place of God in your life, it will ruin you. And it won't last. For instance, let's say your children's success in whatever realm is more important than it should be. You know it. They know it. What happens when they fail? You can't sleep. They're restless. They can't handle it. You can't handle it. Let's say you're in a romantic relationship and it's like in the, in the really good part, you know, like where it's feeling good on both, on both sides and they are everything to you. And they take a little bit too long to get back to you via text. What happens? You freak out, you know? I, like, you're, you work out for three hours, you get drunk, you know, you try to do anything to, to get your mind off of it. Uh, you feel neurotic. Why? Because it's not that you just love them. You love them too much. They took the place of God in your heart. And that's not what a human being is meant to do with anything in this world. John Calvin says, not that we desire things. That's not the problem. It's that we desire them too much. Epithemia. And when a desire becomes a demand, which is very important. When a desire becomes a demand in your life, that's how you know. That's how you can detect the love of the world in your own life. As my friend Jim, Jim Pacta says, he said, you can always hope for something. But the moment you start to hope in something is when the shift happens towards the world, towards the love of the world. And you need to know from this passage, it's passing away. It won't last. Now, um, you may be sitting here thinking, well, uh, sure, I, there's a part of me that believes in God. But I also know that I still love the things in the world and I don't really know what to do with that. And that, that tension is actually um, the reason why John is writing his letter. Uh, a commentator named, named Judith Liu, she says, Assurance of God's love and the devastating consequences without it is what holds this letter together and why he's writing the book. There's a, a missionary, Henry Martin, brilliant uh, translator, 
the past, over the past century, he was talking about when he converted to Christianity. And he was talking about how real the experience was. And it was about four years after. And this is what he said. He said, the work is real. I can no longer, uh, I can no more doubt it than I can my own existence. The whole current of my desires was altered. I'm walking in, in quite another way, though I am incessantly stumbling in that way. That is the point of this passage for those who believe. Part of my challenge to uh, the church in the West, our church, is that are you, are you even stumbling? Is there anything in your life that you do solely based upon the fact that you believe in Jesus? Um, part of this passage is helping us remember who we belong to. You know, even in ministry, uh, ministry can take your identity away. Um, sometimes in Christian circles, passages like these are used to say that like secular work isn't as good as like church work. And that's not John's point at all. In fact, the way of the world is and has always been very much at work in religious institutions, particularly the church, meaning God's work can be a disguise for deep, deep worldliness. And it shouldn't surprise us. But how do you know? If this is going on in your in your own heart, the love of the world. Here's a question you need to ask yourself. Um, do you know who you are separate from what you do? Does that question make sense? So like, let's say you're a mother. Let's say you're a boss. Let's say you're a coach. If that's taken away, do you know who you are? Um. If you lose your job, this is how it plays itself out if you're in love with the world. If you lose your job, you're not just, you're not just sad, but you, you want to kill yourself. When someone breaks up with you, you, you don't just cry and get over it after a while, but you become a maniac. You, you start stalking them. You may start cutting. Why? It's because they were your God. You love the world. You see the difference? John's not telling us to, to think of pain as sort of like an illusion. That's what these false teachers would say. But John says, you know you have eternal life if when you lose things in this world that you really want and it actually makes you love God more, not less. That when you desire things and you really, really want it and, you, and you're trying to get it, and it doesn't make you bitter, but it makes you long for heaven in the absence of it. That's how, you can be, that's how you can be sure that you're made for eternity because God is making you dissatisfied with what's passing away. If you know that your deepest loyalty is to God and not this world, then your job every single day is to resist the world. And in some sense, only you can know in, in the particulars how you and in, in the specifics of your life can resist the world. You and God. It means resisting anything that speaks to your heart like a lover. The lust of the flesh, the desires of the eyes and the pride of life. Um. You know, substance abuse, sexual perversion, 
Those are the easy ones to detect. Uh, what about when no one notices you and you don't get the recognition that you think you deserve, the respect that you think you deserve? What about when uh, you work tirelessly to provide for your family? Day in and day out. And you just think, could someone express just like a little bit of gratefulness? Just like a little? Pride of life. The most deadly of the three. And if you follow, this is how you detect it in your life if you're brave enough to look. Follow the frustration and anger in your own heart. Where life isn't delivering for you. And it will expose where, where a desire became a demand and where you're loving the world over God. There's really got to be uh, some ways in which you are beating the love of the world back in your heart for your own sake. This is called a sanctification. It's the, uh, the process of believing in God, the sanctifying process means you're beginning to take responsibility for your own joy in this life towards God. And it can't be circumstantially driven. It can't. Uh, I want to speak. I want to speak to you, frankly, as a congregation, as an observer, um, as a participant. There is a lot of distrust in our world and in this congregation. And we need to take ownership of that. And we need to take ownership of coming back together in repentance and forgiveness and kindness and begin to be the eternal community that God's called us to be. Through the forgiveness of Christ. Part of resisting the love of the world in a community is to trust one another. If you tell a child not to touch a hot stove and they demand that you have them explain why they shouldn't touch a hot stove, they don't trust you. If you had the great privilege of going to college, do you remember what your freshman year was like? You know, I did college ministry for a decade, and the freshman year was hard. And the reason why is because there are so many options at your fingertips. You know, why don't you sleep with that person? Why don't you drink six of those? Why don't you believe in this ideology? It's very difficult for freshmen. They've, they've been away and isolated from the structure of a familiar community and everything once they get to campus is new. And that's like simultaneously alluring and frightening. And uh, here's what I want to tell you. The world, us, we're going to be in our freshman year of college coming out of COVID. And there will be many options for you, for me, and very little trust of anyone. And here's what I'm telling you. As a pastor in your life, in this small section, uh, now that I have your ear, um, here's what I want to tell you. Don't love the world. Remember who you are in Christ. Remember where you belong. How do you do that? you got to resist it in your own heart. There's a sense in which only you know. 
So think personally, where are the particular ways that you are inclined towards forgetting who you are? Where are you in particular inclined towards thinking, this is it, this is it, this is all I got? And diving headlong into it. Most of us are are either career-driven or pleasure-driven or idea-driven. There was a guy named St. Augustine who was all three. He was a famous rhetorician. If you could combine like the smartest PhD and the professional athlete today, this is Augustine. He like had arrived, okay? And he was walking past this beggar once and he was with his friends and it shook him. And it shook him because this beggar had reached a state of temporary happiness because he was drunk and he, he begged for two pennies and he's like, man, I've been working my whole life trying to attain what he got for just begging and I don't even know if I'm going to get there. Temporary happiness. Where are you settling for temporary happiness? Get a small hit. Where do you, what are the ways in which you are refusing to wait on God? Don't love the world. This leads us to our next point. Is there, is there another way to live? Of course. Of course, uh, you practice your eternal reality by doing the will of God, as our passage says. What's the will of God? It's his, his, his eternal decree, his all-controlling, powerful purpose for creation. But it's also most plainly seen in the person and work of Jesus Christ, where his will is most plainly seen. And what we see in Christ is that he was the most excellent and powerful And he never gratified the desires of his flesh in order to set us free from ourselves, from beating ourselves up or from indulging or trying harder. Um, This passage is not telling you to treat your body with extreme severity so that you can like not love the world. That that is an external way to try to fix an internal problem. The uh, the early church father origin castrated himself and moved out to the desert to try, try to fight the lust of the flesh. And it didn't work. Um, and severity, the reason why it didn't work is because severity of the body can never fix the deep internal problem that we have. You contrast that with the prophet Isaiah. And he has this experience with God where he, he gets undone. And he says, woe is me. And this angel comes and takes this little coal and places it on his lips. And he says, you are clean. And right on the hills of that, God says, who can I send to a people who won't listen to the best news possible for them? And Isaiah's like, send me. He had an experience of the divine where he knew he had been forgiven. And this is, this is what John will say later on in his letter. Uh, you know you have eternal life when you begin to sacrificially love others despite what you're getting in return. Most of us in this world, we invest in people trying to get something back. And you know you have eternal life when you give to people, and that's it. As John will say, um, this is part of the test 
for if you believe. How this practically works itself out in our lives that when somebody hurts you, when somebody lies about you, when somebody even hates you, what, what you do at that moment is that you commit to praying for that person. Maybe even fasting. And saying, God, teach me how to love. You kill the anger in your heart when, when you have, like, when you're going into those false conversations in your head with that person that doesn't like you and you, like, win the argument, you, you kill it. So I'm not going to go there. I don't know why they responded the way that they did. But God, teach me how to love. We, when that happens, we are participating in eternity. That's the stuff that lasts. That's what the New, the New Testament calls the new age, the eon. That's why it's important to see that something eternal and substantial happened 2,000 years ago at, at Calvary. God was showing us what the future is going to look like. And Paul says, this is one of my favorite verses in the Bible because it's talking about working out. And I love to work out. It says, you know, bodily training is of some value. And I'm like, praise God. Yes. And then the next verse is, but godliness is of value in every way as it holds for this life and the one to come. Verse 17 in our passage, 1 John, says about the things that we want so desperately in this life. If we get them, and many of us have, we've gotten the things that we desperately want. It's like hugging a shadow. You can't quite grasp it. The stuff that we tend to desire in this world, it won't last. And the stuff that hard circumstances produces in our life is, is what does last. If you, if you marry somebody because they're hot, it will literally fade. They will literally sag. But what you want is a spouse that understands forgiveness. That when you hurt them, they hurt you. When you sin against them, they sin against you. They forgive. You forgive. And the reason why is because that is of God. It lasts. Look, when, you, when you're beaten up by your desires in this world, if you're constantly failing, when you're at the brink of giving up, and you hear the gospel, and you hear the work of Jesus, and your heart smiles because you know that's your true story. That's your identity. Rooted in forgiveness. And you begin to love God because that's the eternal an internal cleansing thing that will last forever. The beauty of the cross is the will of God. The works of evil have absolutely no defense against you, against you believing it. None. And loving the gospel, and the gospel says God still wants you, God still loves you, the gospel actually allows you to be content with what you have, and the reason why is because, to be frank, Jesus goes deeper than anything. And it frees you up to use the gifts that God's given you for other people and not on yourself. You don't have to treat your skills like your identity. You're separate from what you do. Practicing your eternal reality calls you to, to deep thankfulness in the things that God has given you 
and to wait on the things that you really, really want. And it, what it does is it releases you from the bondage of entitlement. It releases you from saying things like, you know, I've been here for 20 years. I've given this, this place, these people, myself for 20 years. And this is the things I get. The love of God says, I got the great privilege to serve. Loving God calls us to resist the world through joyful sacrifice. But we do those things because Jesus went before us. We are not trailblazers. We're just mimicking him. He was the one that the world threw away, stamped out, and he became eternal through the process of what became the gospel. It is the greatest Cinderella story ever. And what I want to encourage you with today is that on, on your fingertips right now is joy. By practicing your eternal reality, it's, it's available to you, right? This stuff is livable. It's not impossible. In fact, I would say what we're, what we're after right now is impossible because it's passing away. And God calls you to something better. God calls you to something substantial, something solid, something that will not end. That is why we come to church. That is why we, were, that's why we are the church, to remember who we are. Let's pray, and uh, we will continue to worship. Father, we ask that you would give us the strength to resist the world and its entangling snares at every turn in our lives, and that you would help us to see the joy and to experience the joy of practicing our eternal reality by following your will. Um, and Lord, when, when we leave here and all this stuff seems like um, gibberish and Latin, uh, in some language that we can't understand, remind us, Lord, um, in small ways to each other. Lord.